Hello? Hello. <laughs> we'll go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Melanie O'Brien. I am the manager of the National NAGPRA program. And uh, just in case you're in the wrong place, this is the session about the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Um, before we get started, uh, I'd first like to um, thank uh, the AASLH for um, including this panel um, in, in the sessions here. I've been to some wonderful sessions, but I'm glad that we get to be a part of this conference. Um, uh, I'd also like to express my uh, <laughs> pleasure at being here in Kansas City. I travel a lot for the, the work that I do, um, but this is actually home for me. I grew up um, here in Jackson County, um, and uh, it's nice to be back home. Uh, my family has been in Missouri for about 200 years, um, but uh, I no longer live in Missouri, so I guess I broke that tradition. Um, <clears throat> But I'd also like to, um, before we start, and especially on this topic, I would like to express my thanks to the tribes who are ancestral um, to this place where we sit right now. Um, and for them, it's thousands of years that they have called the banks of the Missouri home. And so I um, am thankful uh, for them hosting us here today, um, even if they're not fully aware of that fact. Um, before we start our presentations today, I'd like to get a sense for you um, and any experience you might have with the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act. So I just have a couple questions. If you would just raise your hand. Um, we're not going to be uh, taking notes, so don't, don't worry about that. But um, if, if you have any Native American objects in the collection at your museum, would you raise your hand? Um, if you have had any kind of formal education or training on NAGPRA, would you raise your hand? Okay. Uh, if you've ever consulted with tribes about collections, could you raise your hand? If you've repatriated an object or a collection, would you raise your hand? Uh, and if you have no experience or education and very little knowledge about NAGPRA, would you raise your hand? It's okay to admit it. All right, good. Well, good. I think that's a really good mix of um, experience, um, formal education, and, and then practical application of this law. Um, so what we're going to talk about today are both the, the truths about repatriation and then the consequences that come from returning a collection. So I hope that this is beneficial to you. We're going to give some short presentations about our different perspectives on NAGPRA and the work of repatriation. Um, and then there'll be plenty of time left for a broader discussion. So uh, please be thinking about questions you have. Um, very specific questions are fine. Um, if you have a challenge in your institution, um, we would all collectively be happy to try to address it for you. So as I said, my name is Melanie O'Brien, and I am the, uh, with the National NAGPRA program in Washington, DC. Uh, down at the end, we have uh, David Barlin-Lyles. Um, he is with the Effigy Mounds National Monument in Iowa. 
Uh, Sarah O'Donnell is with the Osage Nation Historic Preservation Office in Pawhuska, Oklahoma. And then Ryan Wheeler uh, with the Robert S. Peabody Institute for Archaeology in Andover, Massachusetts. And each of them will speak more to their own background and um, uh, biography as it relates to NAGPRA. I'm starting off this session um, as the federal agency representative here to remind you um, that NAGPRA and repatriation is not just a good thing, but it's actually the law. Uh, it is something that any institution that receives federal funds must comply with NAGPRA for any Native American collections. Um, compliance requires several items. Um, it includes an inventory of any Native American human remains in a collection. Uh, it, compliance with NAGPRA requires consultation with tribes. And then NAGPRA requires expeditious repatriation upon request from, a, from an Indian tribe uh, or Native Hawaiian organization. Those are kind of the broad brush uh, details of the law. Um, when I speak to museum audiences in particular, I like to remind them um, that NAGPRA is a law. It is required. Um, there's nowhere in the law that it says you don't have to do it if you don't have money or staff uh, or experience. Um, there, there's, no, there's no way out. Um, if you receive federal funds and you have Native American collections, you have something to do. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have to repatriate it, but it does mean there are things you have to do to comply with this law. Just like all of us have to stop at the stop sign, uh, we all have to do NAGPRA if we have those collections. So those are kind of the basic truths. Um, there are some handouts on your table which go into some more specifics. Um, if you didn't get a handout, you can come up at the end. I think there'll probably be some still on the tables. And there's certainly plenty of places where you can learn more about the very specifics of complying with NAGPRA. Um, but rather than give you uh, an education or a, a, a legal review, um, I thought it would be better to tell you an example. Um, and this example, there's actually a sheet on the, the table that has quite a bit more about this example. Um, and the truth that comes from this example is that NAGPRA requires some effort. It requires some work on the part of a museum. Uh, this example is about the Lake County Discovery Museum, which has a different name. It recently changed its name to the Dunn Museum. Um, and it's in uh, Libertyville, Illinois. It's a part of the County Parks and Forest Department of a Chicago suburb, um, north of Chicago and, and a, a little bit to the west. Um, a few years ago, the Lake County Discovery Museum was going to move into a new building, and they needed to move their collections into storage. And that prompted a call to me because they had this small collection of Native American human remains in their collection, and uh, they didn't really want to keep them as a part of their collection. And they were very interested in finding a new place for them uh, when the collection was going into storage. When they called um, me directly, 
they really wanted to know if there was some way they could give them to somebody else to take them from them. And I said to them, well, uh, no, these are your collections. Um, the way to give them to somebody else is to repatriate them. And so that started the journey of repatriation uh, for the Lake County Discovery Museum. Um, they had a, a relatively small collection by NAGPRA standards. They had about uh, 48 sets of human remains and uh, a few, six associated funerary objects with those. So in terms of the, the size uh, of collections that museums deal with, that's on the small side. Um, but they didn't have a lot of information about where they were from. For a few of the collections, they knew they were from Lake County, Illinois, but that was it. Um, for other collections, they had no information at all. They were just on the shelf and had been for years. And that's a familiar story to me. That's one I hear a lot from museums. So it meant that the process wasn't going to be really straightforward. It's not like they could just call up a tribe and hand over the box. There was a little bit more work that was going to be involved, especially for that collection that they had no information about. But at the same time, I wanted to stress that um, to what I said to them at the time, and, and I say to all of you if you're in a similar situation, is this does not mean you need to go out and hire an expert um, or get uh, any kind of um, uh, additional information about the collection that you have. NAGPRA at its basis requires that you just take the information that's available. That's it. And so if you, you don't have much information, you can still move forward. What NAGPRA does require, though, is consultation with tribes. And that was the first step uh, in the process for Lake County, was to initiate um, consultation. Now, they had initially reported this collection to my office in 1995. They had contacted tribes in 2011 and 2013, but didn't get much of a response. So we assisted them in finding some uh, additional contacts to make. Um, and through that process, they ended up consulting uh, with quite a number of tribes. I think in the end, it's something like 26 different tribes that they contacted and consulted either by phone or letter or in person. And through that process of consultation, then they determined how they were going to proceed with the repatriation process. Um, for the collection that they had no information about where it came from, uh, they were required under NAGPRA to uh, request a, a disposition, a, a transfer to a tribe that had agreed to take them, but they needed um, the agreement of the Secretary of the Interior to do that process. And so we assisted them with that process um, it required a presentation to the review committee, which is uh, one of my responsibilities. The NAGPRA review committee uh, advises the secretary of the interior on these issues. And so they came before the review committee, actually by phone, um, presented the information that they had. And the, it was a, a pretty formal but uh, pro forma process in which the review committee uh, agreed with the process they had proposed, the Secretary of the Interior agreed, and they moved pretty quickly forward to the repatriation. Um, so they recently had a, a, another notice published in the Federal Register. It's the last for their collections. They've now completed this journey um, as far as the administrative process is concerned. In, I would say, probably just about two and a half years 
of the active effort um, to repatriate all 46 of these human remains. Now that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. There's still a process for them. They need to transfer, physically transfer these to the tribes, and I think they're working on the process for that. One of the handouts you have is a very recent article from the Chicago Tribune um, that kind of gives the perspective of the museum as well as the tribes on this, uh, this repatriation. So I give you that as an example of, of just how um, uh, NAGPRA, um, while a process, um, can be done, can be done with some relative ease, um, but it, it does require a little bit of work. And uh, I just say that um, the, the truth is that there's still a lot of NAGPRA work to do. Um, my office is responsible for tracking the statistics related to NAGPRA, and um, we have in our database uh, records from museums uh, that, can that museum collections contain about 180,000 sets of human remains. So across the United States, museums big and small, there's a total of about 180,000 individual people in museum collections. Of that 180,000, about 40% of them have completed this process and, and have been repatriated. But that still leaves quite a large number of, um, of human remains in museum collections today, in 2018, 28 years after the passage of this law. So there's work to do in NAGPRA. Uh, what I like to tell students when I talk to them is that there are jobs in NAGPRA for museum work, and if you can hone the skills to do NAGPRA work, it becomes a real asset um, when you go try to uh, look for a job. Because there aren't a lot of people that, um, that enjoy this work or, or actively want to do it, um, but it's really needed. It's a really needed thing in the museum field uh, are those people who are dedicated to the effort of repatriation. Um, there's work to be done in terms of cultural affiliation. It's one of those terms under NAGPRA that's very clearly defined by Congress, uh, but has not necessarily been so clearly applied to the collections that are in museums. And so I see a real opening for, for someone to revisit collections that perhaps were reported without a cultural affiliation in the 1990s. Um, and an effort to revisit those and, and revise those decisions. Um, in that work of NAGPRA, again, I'd remind you of the, the example here with the Lake County Discovery Museum, that uh, an expertise in a particular area of Native American history um, or anthropology is not necessary. The standard that the law applies is a reasonable basis. It means that you pull together the information that's available and you can, as a museum, make a decision based on that information without uh, expert knowledge yourself or at your institution, uh, with the only caveat being that NAGPRA does require consultation. So I would say that the, the best expertise that somebody could have to do NAGPRA is, is not a PhD in anthropology. Um, but is the ability to talk to other people and, and to have meaningful discussions uh, in that consultation phase. Um, and lastly, NAGPRA requires a good faith effort. 
I about once a month get a phone call from an institution from a new curator who says that uh, they have a collection, they don't think it's ever been reported, uh, they're not sure what the status of their consultation is or was, and they're nervous. And I say, that's okay. <laughs> because you called me and that's the first step. And the, the other requirement of the law is that you show a good faith effort. So it's incumbent upon your institutions to show a good faith effort to do this process the way that it's laid out in the law. Um, but as long as you're moving forward in that good faith uh, process, then you're, you're not subject to some of the penalties that, that can be associated with NAGPRA. So um, if any of you find yourselves in that same situation, um, another truth about NAGPRA is that there is help. Um, there's my office, uh, a federal agency office, um, and I see it as one of our primary responsibilities to talk to you, museums that have collections that need to comply with this law so that we can help you figure out how to do that. Um, we provide a lot of information on our website, um, a, a lot of uh, guidance. Um, we also are happy to talk to anybody directly. You can call me anytime. Um, we also have online databases, so if you are at an institution and you're not sure uh, if you've reported a NAGPRA collection, you can always search a database. Uh, the other thing I tell people um, in this field when they're looking to, to take on a new position or a new job at a new institution is to look and see whether that institution has NAGPRA collections. Because if you're going to accept a job as a curator, you might want to know how many Native American human remains are in that collection that you're going to be taking responsibility for. Um, and lastly, I like to remind everyone that we also uh, have a grant program, a federal grant program. We have funds available um, every year, uh, provided Congress uh, gives them to us, um, to assist museums in consulting with tribes, um, and then to assist in the process of repatriation. And those grants are available to any museum. Um, any museum that has uh, NAGPRA collections uh, can apply for one of those grants. So I'll leave you with just a couple of additional truths about NAGPRA. Um, the truth is that it's really better to ask for help than to ignore NAGPRA. Too often, people um, think that they can just kind of turn their head to, uh, to, to NAGPRA or, or the requirements of the law. Uh, too often, people think that because they submitted documents in 1995, they're done. And, and the reality is that that's not true. Um, as long as you have Native American objects in your collection, then you have some responsibilities under NAGPRA. Those responsibilities may be to respond to a request to consult. Um, they may not involve very much effort on your part, but as long as those Native American collections are, are in your, on your shelves, in your museum, you have NAGPRA responsibilities, and if you have questions about that responsibility, it's always better to ask. Because the truth is, if you don't ask, and this is what I tell curators who have 
uh, challenge in getting resources to do NAGPRA work. Um, if, if you don't ask and you don't address the issue, um, you can end up getting in trouble. Your institution could be subject to civil penalties under the law. Uh, depending on the circumstances, there are even criminal um, penalties involved in Native American uh, objects and human remains. So uh, before we have any kind of discussion about that, it's always better to talk about what you can do to be sure that your institution is in compliance, that you're doing everything you can as a museum to demonstrate that good faith effort that is the, the, the standard um, to show that you're doing what is required under the law. Um, so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to, uh, to David. Thank you all for coming. I'm David Barlon Lyles. I am the civil investigator for the NAGPRA office, and I'm also happen to be uh, a federal officer with the National Park Service for 23 years now. At the moment, I am the law enforcement program manager for a sacred cultural site in uh, Iowa called Effigy Mountains National Monument. And uh, put up there a couple of slides. Um, if any of you have any interest at all in how compelling this law is and how compelling these stories are, um, take a look at a couple of those slides up there. There's a beautiful article that was written by Outside Magazine. It's down there on the lower corner there. 2,000 sacred bones went missing 20 years ago, 21 years ago. Um, this detective found them. I happen to be the detective that found them. So put an arrow up to me up uh, as this uh, guy who stole these human remains um, is just been sentenced to prison. Uh, it's a beautiful story involving, it's not a beautiful, it's a terrible story, um, but uh, what happened was the superintendent of Effigy Mounts National Monument in 1990 stole the human remains of 41 people, 41 American Indians from his collection that he was responsible for, and he imprisoned them in his garage for 22 years. Uh, he did that as a, as a penultimate act of racism, and um, he did that to ensure that the American Indians never got their people back. Also, he did that to ensure that the American Indians never got the funerary objects and the items of cultural patrimony back. The very reason why NAGPRA exists. So that article is available online, it's Outside Magazine, and then a uh, podcast group called Criminal did a beautiful podcast on this story. Um, Criminal is kind of associated with National Public Radio. I got it listed up there too, episode 72, Bears, Birds, and Bones. I'm the guy that finds the truth. And uh, NAGPRA actually has, um, the, the, the threshold is actually just preponderance of evidence. Um, of course, I want the whole truth when I begin an investigation after a claim has been made that a museum that is sub has items subject to the provisions of NAGPRA, a museum that has accepted federal funds or is, has a nexus to federal funds, that if they're running away from this law or they're hiding from this law, I'm the guy that uh, chases them down. And I approach this law as a civil rights law. And these things definitely need to be returned. And there's a lot of different forces that help museum personnel 
make decisions to run away from this law and hide from this law. I'm the one that tries to steer the ship from the engine room and get, get that museum to go back on course and, and comply with this law. And uh, um, so therefore, uh, as I'm looking for the truth, um, and if a museum is indeed hiding from this law or running from this law, unfortunately, there will be con consequences. Most of them are civil consequences, and the institution itself uh, will have to face the music of that. Sometimes, though, there are criminal consequences. In the case of this uh, case study, uh, it was a superintendent that stole these people, a federal employee, a National Park Service manager that stole these people. Yeah, I'm going to throw him in prison, definitely. And uh, that case also um, was the first case in the history of the United States where a federal criminal investigation was monitored by American Indian tribes, by sovereign nations. It's never happened before. So um, that level of transparency is what I try to bring to these types of investigations and that level of transparency translates into a great deal of power when it comes to museums that are have decided not to comply with this law and that's where people like I step in to try to right this wrong to enforce this this civil rights law and to return those people, their sacred items and their funerary items back to their, to their people where, where they belonged all the time. So that's my role. Um, <laughs> and it can get a little bit of scare, it can get pretty scary, but of course as an investigator what I'm looking for is as much cooperation as possible. Often I'm finding there's uh, a misunderstanding, there's a historical timeline, there's something about that museum that uh, has kind of set them up to fail a little bit. It's probably not their fault. Uh, certainly not the current members of the institution a lot. And once we come to some kind of consensus about cooperation, about coming to the truth together, that sets the whole thing up for success and often the consequences become much, much less. Thank you. <clears throat> um, my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I work for the Osage Nation Historic Preservation Office. Um, I work for the Wajaji uh, Kotsikitsea, um, and my job as NAGPRA coordinator really um, means I'm coordinating and assisting in all levels of NAGPRA from the perspective of the Osage Nation. And what I wanted to speak with you a little bit uh, uh, today is not only about my office, which is responsible not only for NAGPRA, but for Section 106, for uh, compliance other, uh, under state laws and, and other ordinances, um, is the truth about uh, tribal consultation. Um, as has been mentioned, uh, under NAGPRA, tribal consultation is required. Um, it is specifically stated in uh, the regulations that uh, NAGPRA consultation starts as early as possible. Um, I know that it can be a little intimidating, uh, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with tribal consultation, to uh, pick up the phone and, and call me. But I am mandated to answer my phone, and I like hearing from people. Um, as Melanie mentioned, it requires a good faith effort. Um, I get calls from uh, folks that have just joined the team at a museum and opened a closet, and now they have to do NAGPRA. 
I've gotten calls from folks that have been working on inventories and are just tearing their hair out, trying to make sure they're doing it right, and they want to make sure they're doing it right. Uh, and I appreciate that. Um, but consultation, um, oftentimes folks think that they can send a letter to my office and say that they have consulted. And oftentimes when you're looking at the history of your institution and what they have done in terms of tribal consultation, there's a letter. Maybe it's from 1995 or 98, but that's all you have. Um, NAGPRA specifically lets us know that a letter uh, is not consultation. Tribal consultation is an exchange. Um, and NAGPRA requires that you, if you send a letter, you have to follow it up, either with a telephone call or some sort of face-to-face -face communication. Um, and that face-to-face -face communication is always my preference, although I'd love to hear from you on the phone, um, because it gives us a chance to build a relationship. NAGPRA is a process. It's a process and it's a goal. So the process for tribal consultation is to let me know what you're dealing with, what your problems are, and I can in turn offer help. Um, I can offer really a, a, a resource for you. I can bring you information about your collections, about what you have. I can help with identification. Uh, we can give context to a lot of collections that don't have a lot of information past maybe an accession card that's kind of moldering away in a corner somewhere. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about some kind of uh, uh, general case studies and uh, some examples, but we've had a lot of success with tribal consultation under NAGPRA. It is um, a very important and very sensitive topic. Um, as you know, we've mentioned, NAGPRA is a property law, NAGPRA is administrative, but NAGPRA is a civil rights law. Um, and when we're talking about your collections, uh, we consult the Osage Nation, my office, I consult with over 250 institutions across the United States. Osage Ancestral Territory spans about 15 states. Um, and as you know, historically, a lot of, especially early curators, like to swap things around. Um, and, and I've traveled pretty far and wide and dealt with very, very small collections and uh, uh, much, much larger institutions. Um, one of my uh, favorite consultations was actually with a museum in uh, Rhode Island. Um, we showed up for some uh, ancestral remains. And while we're there, especially if I happen to be finally meet someone face-to-face, uh, -face, we do a collection review of the ethnographic collections, maybe the archaeological bulk collections that no one's had a chance to look at. So I can help you with identification and context. When I was in Rhode Island and starting to go through some of these collections, we found just a few items that had an old masking tape that said Mixed Cave, Missouri. Now, unless you're incredibly intimately familiar with the thousands of caves in the state of Missouri, that's not very helpful. Um, however, coming from the Osage Nation, uh, uh, some of the original occupants of the state of Missouri, I am intimately familiar with a lot of the caves in the state of Missouri. And so I was able to take notes, do research on my side of things back in Oklahoma, and come back with the archaeological site number the exact location of that cave, the last time folks were doing a survey, any kind of information recording in the cave, and if there had been evidence of burials in that cave. There had. 
which means that elevates the item that we found to funerary item status. That's information that if I had never been there, if we had never talked, we wouldn't have gotten there. We wouldn't have been able to complete our goal. It's your goal and it's my goal to be compliant with NAGPRA. And that was really out of the blue, middle of nowhere, not nowhere, Providence isn't nowhere, of course, I apologize. <laughs> but for me, in Rhode Island, it was a little far afield. Um, another great uh, example is, is when we look at ethnographic collections as well. I know uh, the first priority for most folks is going to be the ancestors and those human remains, because that is a pretty visceral injustice for anybody. Um, but we have to also look at the ethnographic collections and look for objects of cultural patrimony, sacred items, and funerary items as well that may be associated or unassociated. Um, what has happened more often than not um, is when I get a chance to actually go through a museum's collections and help and realize you have collections that no one ever really looked at again. Someone donated it. It's been sitting on a shelf. We've never put it on display. We don't know what it is. When it comes to objects of cultural patrimony, the best people to make the identification are tribal representatives. There is no way anyone has an encyclopedic knowledge of every object of cultural patrimony for every federally recognized tribe in the United States. So we had a great instance of NAGPRA consultation. Again, I was there for, um, initiated the consultation for ancestral remains. Um, when a museum actually not far from here uh, just gave me a heads up that they, you know, had some, some, you know, Osage items and if I wanted to take a look, and I did, and there were definitely NAGPRA qualifying items. But as we discussed things, um, part of consultation uh, for uh, my office is to request all additional documentations you have. Like I said, it may be a piece of paper that says the name of a cave and nothing else. It might be uh, an inventory or a stack of really intense research someone did back in the 1930s that no one can even decipher their handwriting. We never know. Um, but when we were asking uh, for that additional documentation, we realized that the institution had letters from Francis LaFlush. Now, Francis LaFlush is the ethnographer for the Osage. Uh, he, spoke he was Omaha, so he spoke a cognate language to Osage. And he wrote um, these uh, reports um, for the well, what is now the Smithsonian that really details a lot of information of uh, traditional Osage life uh, that was given to him straight from um, the Nohojinga, the Osage priests. So he's a kind of a, a, a revered figure in my office, certainly. That's where we get a lot of information. And to realize that a random museum had his letters, handwritten letters from him, talking about Osage artifacts, uh, made my year. And we suddenly realized, oh my gosh, we, this is the best thing. And let's talk about digitizing this and getting this information back and forth. And it worked out perfectly. And now my office also benefited from this consultation, this exchange of information. Um, it, it really was amazing. Now, I think the, the truth of tribal consultation is that it can be intimidating. And because it is such a sensitive issue, we're talking about this, especially when you're talking about um, ancestral remains, this historic reality which was objectifying 
Native Americans and dehumanizing them. And now we see very clearly that we have to do something to fix this. NAGPRA is our vehicle. NAGPRA is what we can do. And the first step of NAGPRA is to consult with the tribes. So the truth is it can be intimidating. It can be sensitive. It can be gut-wrenchingly, emotionally fraught. Certainly in my office it is. But it's the right thing to do. And we get more out of it every single time. We really get a lot more than we ever anticipate for the museums, for the agencies, as well as uh, for the Osage Nation uh, during consultation. Um, Melanie mentioned that, and you can see on our ancestral territory map, that Kansas City is um, right in the middle of uh, Osage ancestral territory. Uh, Kansas City and, and, this, and the state of Missouri is part of the 113 million acres which were ceded by the Osage Nation to the United States government. I'll add that the Osage Nation received one penny for every six acres of that land. So the truth <laughs> is that we are fighting this history, and NAGPRA allows us to do that. Um, and as I said, my job isn't to be, um, isn't to investigate. It's certainly not to tell you every single one of your legal responsibilities, although I will. <laughs> My job is to consult, is to build a relationship with every single institution that lets me know I have a NAGPRA qualifying collection, I might have a NAGPRA collection, and we start from there. And uh, that's the truth. Thank you. I just realized as everybody was talking that I was the museum guy that's on this panel. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, sometimes it takes me a little while to realize the obvious. Um, so uh, my name's Ryan Wheeler. I'm the director of the Robert S. Peabody Institute of Archaeology at Phillips Academy. And I, I wanna tell you a little bit about our institution because we're um, unusual in, I think, a number of ways. So, uh, firstly, we're unusual in that we're at a, uh, we're part of a high school. Uh, Phillips Academy was founded in 1778 uh, and is one of these old New England boarding schools. Uh, and so I've worked there for about six years, and when I, um, uh, before that, uh, before I moved to the, the Boston area, I'd worked and lived really my entire life in Florida. And, um, you know, when, when I heard about some boarding schools, I thought, mm, boarding schools, I know what that, what that is. That's reform school. That's where they send bad kids. But that wasn't really, obviously not really the case. A friend of mine who went to uh, another boarding school said, just watch the Dead Poets Society, and then you'll know <laughs> everything that you need to for the job. So I watched it a couple of times, and, I, and they hired me. Um, <laughs> so um, I think we're also unusual in that we have, um, we're, we're really a rather small uh, institution. So you may recognize the Peabody name. Uh, it, we share it with uh, at least three other institutions. Uh, there's a Harvard Peabody, there's a Yale Peabody, and there's the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, which has really become a pretty, um, I think they're on the way to becoming an internationally recognized 
you know, sort of art museum. Um, we're kind of, I won't get into the details of the genealogy, but we're sort of like the nephew of those places. Um, and, and we're the smallest of the Peabody Museums, though um, we have a very large collection. So we're currently working on inventorying our collections, which you, many of that may resonate with many of you. And um, we estimate that we have 500 to 600,000 objects. So by way of comparison, uh, in April, when I was at the Society for American Archaeology Conference in Washington, D.C., I went on a repatriation tour of the American Museum of Natural History, and we looked at their anthropology collections, and they said they had 1.5 million objects. And I thought, oh, we have like a third of what natural history has, which is kind of astonishing. Um, plus, we have archival materials. We have about 60,000 photographs, um, often materials, as Sarah said, that are associated with these collections that are sort of the, con some of the, provide some of the details of context. Um, and I think we're unusual in another way. When NAGPRA began in the 1990s, um, the people that, that worked at our institution, um, uh, Specifically, uh, Jim Bradley, who was the director, and Leah Rosenmeyer, who was the NAGPRA coordinator, took a particularly progressive approach to, um, to consultation and affiliation uh, and a lot of the things that people have, have talked about. And as in talking to Melanie earlier, really acknowledged too that we didn't really know and we continue to not really know exactly what we have. Um, but when we do consultation, we often wind up learning more about, um, about those uh, uh, collections. Um, also, in kind of talking about some of the consequences, but sort of maybe different consequences than those that David talked about, um, there are all kinds of really sort of amazing consequences that come out of um, consultation and repatriation work. Um, and this started at our institution with people that worked there in the 90s and has really continued today. Um, we often have wound up um, with these amazing partnerships that transcend NAGPRA. People um, uh, with tribes and people at our institution decide that we have something in common. Um, sometimes it's, oftentimes it's around uh, high school students and education, and we agree that we need to do um, something else. Uh, we need to continue the uh, relationship that began with just the con with the consultation. Um, and so I think uh, I like that photograph of me. Uh, <laughs> I was younger then. That was when I was in Miami, uh, <laughs> but. Um, uh, so here's a, you know, here's just another case study, um, and and you can look on the internet, and there's the the Park Service for a while had a very nice kind of case study of the Pecos Pueblo uh, consultation and ultimate repatriation. I think it's it stands really as one of the largest repatriations to date. Um, 
our institution uh, funded uh, Alfred V. Kidder, who's considered sort of the father of modern, ar modern American archaeology, his excavations at this site in New Mexico between 1915 and 1929. And those excavations included his study, really pioneering study of the stratigraphy of the site and the understanding pre-radiocarbon dating that, you, that there was some real time depth in American archaeology. Um, but what it, what the other product of those investigations uh, was they excavated um, over 2,000 individuals from the site, uh, as well as tens of thousands of funerary objects. And so in the 90s, uh, consultation uh, was conducted with the descendant community, the Pueblo of Jemez, uh, also in New Mexico, and ultimately, and there were various complications too, there were split collections, which is sort of my bete noire, uh, but uh, uh, ultimately there was a repatriation in 1999. There are some amazing photographs of um, uh, people that walked from the Pueblo of Jemez, which is not terribly close to um, uh, Pecos, where the people were reburied, um, they, uh, they spent several days walking there, accompanying the, the remains. Uh, and we recently published a book on this, and the copy editor was like, this must be wrong. People couldn't have walked, you know, this far. It's, it's like 100 miles uh, in New Mexico. And I was like, let me check on that. <laughs> the answer was, they did. They spent several days walking with the, with the accompanying the semi-tractor trailer that um, um, bore the remains of their ancestors. Um, but um, really, that wasn't the end of the story. The, end, the, the story continues, and the people that worked at our institution in the 90s and the people at the Pueblo of Jemez liked each other, and they wanted to keep doing things together, and they saw that some of that could be with um, high school students. And so for many years, we ran um, a program called, oh, there's the, there's the people. A lot of people joined at the end. Not everybody walked the entire way. <laughs> there were older people and kids, so. Um, um, but um, uh, we started doing a, a program called Pecos Pathways, which is sort of an exchange program where students from Phillips Academy went to New Mexico and spent some time uh, doing homestays and doing various activities with kids from the Pueblo of Jemez. Um, they often went to Pecos and worked with Park Service folks there doing little restoration projects. And then they'd all come back to the Boston area and do uh, visit the Mashantucket Pequot Museum in Connecticut or do other, other uh, uh, things, go to a Red Sox game. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, and I, I, you know, I think uh, we, we sort of haven't been doing that program, but it ran for something like, it started in 1998, and I think we did it most recently a few years ago. So we did it for about 18 years every summer. Um, more recently, we've actually connected with a number of um, pottery artists from the Pueblo of Jemez, and then they've been coming and working with uh, classes. And they spend a week... Um, they bring native clay with them. This year we had 
like 50 kids that were in studio ceramics classes that spent a week working with these native artists. And um, they, um, you know, they made their own pieces, they decorated them in traditional ways, and then we did um, firings. Uh, not kiln firing, but traditional open air pottery firings. Um, and we definitely do not, uh, we call our public safety office about five minutes before we light the fires and <laughs> sort of say, oh, we're going to see a lot of smoke over here, but, you know, we don't ask for permission. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, so, and, you know, I think probably the, the, there are, other things that the future holds uh, as we uh, continue our relationships with, um, um, with the Pueblo of Jemez. But it really started with consultation and repatriation. But so we've had these really amazing consequences. And we've seen um, consultation and repatriation really generate other um, cool relationships that have uh, had all kinds of other uh, consequences that you couldn't really even have foreseen or imagined, you know, initially. And uh, it's interesting, so I was visiting, um, this was several years ago, I was visiting with the director of another institution in the Boston area who has had a, taken a very different approach to um, uh, NAGPRA and consultation and repatriation. Um, I won't say, I won't mention their name. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he was sort of saying, you know, I, you know, I'd like, uh, I'd like us to have more, you know, I wish more native artists and, and, you know, writers would come here to the museum and do programming. And I'm not quite sure why we haven't been able to do more of that. And, I was, you know, a lot of it was because they did not have a very good reputation with uh, Indian country. Uh, and so, you know, I, I pointed that out. I don't think it, it didn't help, but it was, um, you know, it was like, well, there's, there's sort of, you know, I mean, if you think of, um, you know, if you think of, you know, Native Americans as part of your audience, um, then, you know, you, the, th this is one, you know, this is some, this is a piece that you are required to do and probably are not going to have much of a relationship with that community until you, you know, handle your legal obligations. Um, I don't know what else I can say. Oh, I will t share one other th uh, thought um, that came out of a very recent conversation. So we, we participated in a repatriation um, just a week or so ago uh, that took a, it took a long time to arrange. Uh, I think the original notice for those of you who are into all of the sort of lingo of NAGPRA, got published about a decade ago, but the person never went home. And so um, we, we, we are constantly revisiting um, our inventories and notices, as, as Melanie and Sarah have talked about, that this is not, you know, we sent somebody a letter in 1995. Certainly the people in 2018 must still have that letter and, and know its contents, right? Uh, unlikely. Uh, <laughs> uh, those people don't work there anymore, probably, right? You know, 
Yeah. Um, so uh, so we're constantly going back and like you know we um, maybe we need to maybe the maybe people weren't ready to really have consultation at that time, but they could be ready now. So here's an opportunity. We'll we'll start to make phone calls and send letters or emails, and um, and and so we started doing that la about a year ago, and it resulted in the repatriation of this individual and. I had the honor of, of bringing the person to the airport hotel where the tribal representatives were staying for the night before traveling back to the Southwest. And you know, we sat for a while in their hotel room just kind of chatting. And they, they talked about some visits to other museums that they had made recently. And we talked a little bit about um, one of the reactions that they often encounter and we heard a little of this, David mentioned it, was that you know, people at museums today often will say, I didn't take these people, or I didn't remove these things. And that is true. Um, and, I, and we kind of talked about that. They had gotten a very strong version of that response when they, when they visited somewhere. And I thought about it for a minute. See, I don't often get the obvious right away. Um, but I was like, you know, so there are those people that did take those people and objects. But we're, you and I and all of us, are in this amazing historical moment where we can be on the other end of that timeline. And we can be the ones who help send those people back. And I was, it was like it struck me. And we talked about that for a good 10 or 15 more minutes. And it was like, wow, this is a really amazing moment to be in. Um, sometimes our predecessors at our institutions weren't in that position for whatever reason, um, but, but we are. And NAGPRA is that, that um, uh, conduit, you know, to, to make that happen, uh, to kind of close that circuit um, and see, you know, see people and their belongings, sacred objects going back to, you know, where they where they belong, so that's all I will have to say. And I know we we have some time for like people yeah. to yeah. So we're happy to have conversations and questions too. Y'all want to ask Melanie all the legal stuff? <laughs> yeah. I'll just uh, kind of summarize that through the microphone so you, everybody can hear. Her, her question is, she's from an institution in Virginia um, where up until recently there have only been state-recognized tribes but no federally recognized tribes. Um, and the question is, does NAGPRA still apply? Are there ways to use NAGPRA? And the answer is, yes, you can still call me. Um, and yes, there's a mechanism. So um, there, there is the, um, the process is available to repatriate to non-federally recognized tribes. It does require um, the approval of the Secretary of the Interior. 
Um, but that's not a difficult or insurmountable process. Um, it's really a, a matter of, of uh, bureaucratic steps um, to, to have that approval. Um, and with that approval, then you can certainly repatriate uh, to a non-federally recognized um, Indian group. Um, and that's certainly the case in other places where um, uh, tribes have not gained recognition. Uh, it's immensely easier now in Virginia with the recognition not only of the Pamunkey, but then um, earlier this year an additional five tribes. So there's, um, there's more room um, in Virginia now to follow the NAGPRA process through the just easy uh, paper process rather than the, the additional step of the Secretary of the Interior. But certainly there, um, the NAGPRA regulations provide uh, many ways for you to return collections to any descendant community, whether they're recognized or not. Um, in California, we've seen uh, recently an increase in the number of repatriations in California. Um, and in that case, uh, it's the federally recognized tribes have come forward to kind of stand in place of the non-federally recognized groups. And while they are in the paperwork uh, for the transfer, they're not the ones that actually um, do the reburial. And that's because NAGPRA um, is, uh, in addition to civil rights law, it is, uh, it is Indian law. Um, and it, once you make that transfer to the federally recognized tribe, it's up to them what happens after that. Um, and in those cases uh, in California, that's been the process. The federally recognized tribe has agreed to, um, to hand the remains over to a non-federally recognized group who, who takes care of them um, in their way. I would add to, I would add that we, we did a um, repatriation. We've done a number of repatriations that have involved um, non-state recognized tribes. We did one recently f in Vermont and we, we, we took the process that, that Melanie was describing. Um, there was a period of about a year or so where the, the group, the, there were no meetings of the National NAGPRA Review Committee. And so um, we worked with um, the tribes in, in Maine who recognized the kinship with the folks in Vermont to, um, to, to facilitate that repatriation. And that was it was we it was kind of it was pretty a pretty easy way to um, address it Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So it's interesting. The Pueblo of Jemez is was recognized um, uh, by the federal government uh, as being the descendant community of, um, I think there was an executive order uh, prior to NAGPRA ever being around. But the uh, people from the Pueblo, of, from Pecos in 1838, there weren't many people left, and they all moved to the Pueblo of Jemez, which was the only other place that people spoke Towa, their language. Um, and so the people at Jemez are the descendant community for, for Pecos. In fact, the lieutenant governor of Jemez is the governor of Pecos, even though nobody lives there. In 1838, the, the remains of the people at Pecos, the, the, the remnant group 
moved to Jemez. Oh, okay. So when the excavations were done, there was no one living in... Nobody lived there. Right. That's right. But, but that's, those are the kinds of things that get, you know, and come out in consultation and kind of get investigated that way. That's a great question. Um, we, I don't think we necessarily have a preference. So it depends on the collection that we're talking about and the time period of the collection, if this is a collection that is controlled by an institution, if we know that there's split collections, we need to be talking with multiple institutions you have in the same time frame. Um, I prefer to, you know, there, you were, it's always required one-on-one -on -one consultation um, because uh, every tribe is going to have a different set of consultation requirements in terms of some tribes will want all of your additional documentation, some won't, things like that. Um, but if you're talking about like the very large multi-tribal consultation meetings or the singular meetings that happen, um, I, we've participate in both. Um, if there is a collection that is going to be of interest to multiple tribes, because this is an area where multiple tribes inhabited over thousands and thousands of years, then all the stakeholders need, need to be at the table to make a determination about what we're going to do. Um, if it's something very, very specific, a single set of ancestors from one site, from one time period, um, and we know that the Osage occupied that area, it's more than appropriate to just call me directly and we'll have our own meeting. Um, but it, yeah, it kind of just depends on the, the collection that we're talking about and what, what kind of factors we need to take into account. But we'll, we'll consult in any way <laughs> that we have to. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Yeah. So I have a, it, it's sort of a pre, it's, it's, it's a question um, that I got from a museum. Um, is if someone, a potential donor, comes into a museum and has something that the museum thinks is questionable, um, the folks at the museum are like, we want to do the right thing. We want to know what to tell this donor. So sort of that, that pre-collection potential donor conversation, what's the ethical thing for a museum to do? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'll slide it on to the legal section, but, okay. So I'll I'll start first with I'm, I'm interested to hear what Melanie says. <laughs> I'll I'll start first with a little bit, and then I, I think maybe I'll ask Dave to see if he can't add a little uh, perspective. But um, this is a growing issue, and I think we we recognize that as um, a, a, a generation ages, um, 
they're leaving behind a lot of things in private collections that their children and grandchildren may not want to keep. Um, I've had over the last month in two social circumstances somebody sit down next to me with a glass of wine and say, so just hypothetically, <laughs> you know, it, I think it's, it's continuing. And I, there are lots of solutions. There are lots of options. Um, I think ethically, a museum professional is obligated to be sure that that collection goes to a proper place. If your institution is not that proper place, if, if you have your own um, policies or rules or governing board that is going to prevent you from assisting that individual, then I would say you have an ethical responsibility to find somebody who can help. Um, you, and, and that's kind of where I come to uh, give advice on, on perhaps who can help. Um, we certainly have lots of institutions that are very familiar with NAGPRA that do a lot of NAGPRA work in every state. Um, and sometimes you can find uh, somebody like that to turn to to, to help you. Um, state historic preservation offices um, can quite often assist in some of these circumstances. Um, you know, that tends to be the office that gets called when there's an unmarked burial discovered. And uh, there are certain state laws that are going to come into play. Um, and so we always encourage you to reach out to that SHPO's office because I don't know every state law. And I can't tell you what your responsibilities under the state laws are. Um, but I can tell you if you accept the collection, um, if, if you have a process for doing that, whether you accession it or not, whether you put it um, on a shelf in a curation facility or it stays in an office in a box, if you have a legal control over that collection, um, then you have a NAG, NAGPRA obligation. And I would encourage you to, if, if you can, to fulfill that obligation. Um, to assist that private individual in, in finding a, a good um, end for this collection. Um, I know that um, Sarah um, and many of the tribes um, will, will work with a private individual on a, a private collection um, and, and do that process uh, outside of NAGPRA. Um, Again, I think it comes back to the ethical responsibilities of ensuring that the, the donor is somebody who's going to follow through with that and, and assessing that as best you can. And I guess the other piece that I would encourage anybody to talk with a potential donor about is the consequences of, of not donating it. Uh, the consequences of going to uh, an antique shop or um, uh, an, an auction house, um, certainly for human remains, that is a criminal violation. Um, if you try to sell Native American human remains, um, if you if you transfer for profit uh, Native American human remains, that's in violation of federal law. Um, the objects, uh, it's a little bit more complicated. You need to be sure that you have a, a clear ownership. Um, before you would take any kind of object to an auction house. 
Um, so I would ensure that the potential donor is aware of um, what happens if, if Dave comes knocking on their door. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know that, I, I guess it's important to remember that, um, that we're not, in these cases, we're not always just talking about formal kind of sales. I, I quite often get emails about things on Facebook Marketplace or eBay. Um, and I, I turn those over to law enforcement. Um, the other option that, that you have um, is the FBI. The FBI has an um, art theft crime unit, um, which in addition to works of art framed and hung in museums, they, they also deal with these kinds of cases. Um, and so that's always an option as well. And, and if you're not sure what to do, and you don't feel very comfortable about the person that's sitting in your museum, calling your local uh, FBI agent office is, is not a bad idea just to cover yourself and, and to ensure that you're you know, taking whatever steps are available to you. I don't, Dave, do you want to add anything to that? Control and legal control versus physical control. They're broadly defined. And you can find yourself suddenly in legal control of these items subject to the provisions of NAGPRA when you don't even feel like you own it yet. So um, it's important to uh, recognize how quickly that can happen. Part of me says, if, if you have the capacity to take something that's sacred or people, and you have the capacity to follow the provisions of NAGPRA, you should do that. Uh, especially if the alternative is that these things end up on the black or gray market and end up funding terrorism or something ridiculous like that. So the consequences, you know, this market is huge. Uh, it's the third highest illegal market in, in, the, in the world. And, and it's used to fund terrorism. So uh, the, we need to find ways to get control of these things, to repatriate these things, and get them back to where they need to go. And if you have the capacity, please do that. To, to accept it for repatriation? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I just, well, I'll add as the museum guy that we do that all the time. So we've taken collections from, you know, individuals that have come in from other institutions, especially small institutions that don't have professional staff or, you know, um, and, and we've sort of started doing that in the, in the 90s. So, and then we just, you know, put the, put the uh, people or, or objects onto our inventories and, and do NAGPRA. And so, you know, there is, there is sort of a little, um, you know, somebody would want to be careful uh, around um, paperwork. You know, you want somebody who's leaving a collection with you to sign a deed of gift and and that sort of thing and usually that says you know you can you know your institution can take various actions um, including deaccessioning whatever you know you might uh, need to do and so 
of course, federal law sort of trumps a lot of that stuff too. So it's it's like even if you don't really have that, you you were in legal control of these objects, and so you really have to follow the law. But I think it's ethical to take them. Um, so, uh, we don't, uh, go out and, um, investigate, uh, museums and, and their effort to repatriate unless somebody makes an allegation. Um, so we will investigate allegations, uh, of a museum that has failed to comply. Um, and, uh, that's, that's the kind of civil investigation that, can be done under NAGPRA, and, and that museums should be aware of as an option. If you, if you turn away a tribe who's asked uh, for a collection or for information, or when Sarah wants all that documentation and you say, no, you can't have it, then, then Sarah, or really anybody, can um, make an allegation that you failed to comply and the federal government will investigate it. Um, the large number of human remains that remain in museum collections today um, is a, a circumstance that has lots of explanations. You know, part of what Ryan described is having to, to sort of reinitiate consultation on a regular basis to try to find um, a resolution for collections is, is a continual challenge. Other cases, though, I would say where museums have reported their collections and they really haven't done anything else since then. And uh, as Sarah described, she actively consults with 250 institutions. And that's um, probably only the collection side. She's also then working with any federal land managers on additional discoveries that might be made in, on federal land today. So the burden on tribes to respond is, is significant. And so um, I think that more and more tribes are taking a strategic approach to collections and identifying those collections that um, for their reasons are of highest value. And while I think that um, any tribe would be uncomfortable with the idea that, that there are uh, remains have a, a higher priority than other remains, there's certainly places, uh, sites that have been excavated that are um, incredibly significant um, and so tribes have have taken some strategic approach to those um, those remains uh, but the other problem I guess is that after 28 years there's still a lot of work um, to be done and and um, on both sides uh, it's on tribes to kind of make these requests and to push the envelope um, and then a lot of museums um, have uh, their own needs or requirements for, for inventorying or, or reviewing what they you know, initially reported for accuracy before they return them. So there are, are lots of moving parts 
to the size, but I would say that um, it's when you find a, a dedicated um, museum practitioner, um, somebody like Ryan, um, who directs an institution and kind of mandates that that we're going to move this forward. We're going to take um, we're going to take an active approach to to repatriation and to NAGPRA. Um, that you see huge movement and, and huge change in institutions. We now have several museums that no longer have Native American human remains in their collections. Um, probably one of the biggest collections in um, 1990 when NAGPRA was passed was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Um, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science has no more human remains in their collection, not even just the Native American human remains. They have no human remains. They've actively worked to repatriate everything, and that includes to, to foreign um, institutions or indigenous groups. So uh, it can be done um, if it is the, uh, the goal of, of both your administration, but also of an individual. Of a, of a, it really does take some individual action. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, it just got FOIA'd the uh, about a week ago, so it'll probably be on YouTube in no time. Um, I'll just say that I didn't find the old ones; they found me. I have so many thoughts on this topic. Um, the first is <clears throat> Alaska is a slightly different situation um, than the lower 48, but the one of the main issues I have is just a lack of awareness and education. I, uh, I'm not from Kansas City, I'm from St. Louis. <laughs> Thank you. And <laughs> a little bit of a rivalry. But I, I became an archeologist I was not in any way during my education uh, in St. Louis informed which tribe lived where I lived at all. No one ever said anything. Now, sometimes there's some pretty industrious and, and, and great teachers and educators that t you know that very early on in your education, but the vast majority of the time you don't. Um, the big crux of that problem is that people have no idea. Um, I travel out of state a lot. I stay at a lot of motels on the side of the road. And I cannot tell you how many times um, when I pull up in my vehicle with a big Osage Nation sticker on the side and my Osage Nation gear, that someone's like, oh, you work for 
Native Americans. I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, they're still around? I mean, my, my check's clear every month, so I think they are. And uh, yeah. But it honestly is a, a lack of awareness. People have no idea. Um, Melanie mentioned there's a huge problem right now, generationally. There's been a bit of a demographic shift. And people are inheriting things. They have no idea what to do. Um, part of that, um, my office, is we do outreach. We have an Osage culture traveling trunk here in the state of Missouri that any public school teacher or private school teacher can check out and use and use any of the lesson plans. Um, you know, we really actively try and teach people. In terms of awareness, um, a lot of institutions have started adding NAGPRA to their museum website. What is NAGPRA? Just general information. Hey, did you know there's a federal law? I mean, I, I, it's very intuitive. Um, people are aware of who used to live here in the United States. They're aware that um, there's a pretty terrible history there. And if you have something that isn't yours, you should return it. So just general awareness is really the, the kind of the easiest way that we're trying to fix problems like that. Um, we're over time, so I'll just conclude by saying I've um, had a, a really great experience here um, over the last two days listening to a lot of issues and discussion. And, you know, I think that um, both of the keynote speakers have talked about the role that museums, especially local and state museums, play in the world today and the amount of trust um, that your institutions um, have um, in the public. And I would say that, um, you know, one of the best ways to be transparent and uh, open about the collections that you have and, and the process of repatriation is to um, continue to engender that trust with all communities in the United States, not just the ones that um, still live uh, within your zip code or state boundaries, um, but certainly the communities that have been removed from, from your communities and, and your local places, that finding um, that, that level of trust, um, you know, and, and really using it to your advantage. And I would just add uh, that by um, ignoring NAGPRA or trying to avoid it, um, you might, in fact, be eroding that trust, not just with Native American communities, but with your own communities. Um, so I think that NAGPRA can do a lot to, um, to support museums. Uh, there are some great consequences to NAGPRA. Um, there's some great benefits to this process. Um, and it's, um, it, it is a law, as I said at the beginning, and you have to do it. But it also is a really a, a good thing to do. So thank you all for coming.